The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Leslie Mordorki, at the young age of 18, visited Vietnam as a member of the United States Entertainment Unit. Twenty years later, she received the news of a rare form of cancer that is now directly attributed to the chemical agent Orange. She talks of the suffering and devastation caused in those life-changing events that unfolded during those early years. My guest today was invited as an 18-year-old girl to join the United States Entertainment Unit, subsequently visiting troops in Vietnam as support for their sacrifice. Following her return, she received a formal education in the entertainment industry and led a normal life for some 20 years. In 1990, the news of a rare form of cancer changed her life with severe and life-changing surgeries through which she received support from family and friends. Only now has it become very apparent that this rare form of disease is directly attributed to the chemical Agent Orange used by the United States during the Vietnam conflict. In her status at the time of her service as non-military personnel, she has received no acknowledgement or reward for the dedication to which she served her country as an innocent teenager. She joins me today to chart a life of the many challenges, heartbreak and loss in the aftermath of a conflict that was to change her life forever. Leslie, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's a great privilege to be able to share this time with you. The pressures, I'm sure, are great, and your heroic journey is certainly something that, that I'm proud to share with you and that I hope that we can affect uh, change for both yourself and others in the future from this. Well, thank you very much, David, for inviting me. Leslie, can we chart for the listeners uh, this journey? Uh, we may or may not complete this in one program, and there is no rush, because I believe that our listeners need, need to have clarity. Can we start with your childhood? I'd love to uh, find out what it was that you were doing in your childhood prior to your departure to Vietnam. Uh, certainly. Um, I am a native of California. I was actually born in Hollywood, and I have lived my entire life in a suburb of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley. And I had uh, a classic 50s and 60s kind of TV upbringing. My mom stayed at home, and we always have dinner on the table every, every night. My dad was an actor, and uh, we had sort of an idyllic lifestyle. We had a very loving environment. My folks were kind of interesting in that they moved quite often. They uh, would sort of didn't ex exactly like the idea of painting a house. Not necessarily that they would ever pick up a brush, but we would uh, kind of get itchy, and about every five years we would move. So we lived in a Japanese-style house. We lived in a hacienda-style. We lived in a ranch house. It was just kind of fun. My sister and I would look at one another, and we'd go, uh-oh. They'd come yeah. to us, and they'd say, uh you know, we, we'd like to show you something. We'd go, oh, boy, another move. Um, I went to uh, 
an elementary school uh, called Roscomer Elementary. I went to Portola Junior High. All of these are in the Valley. And I graduated from Birmingham High School. I have a sister who is two years older than I am. And I think we were probably typical siblings, more friendly than the competitive siblings. And in our early years, my sister was more of a girly girl than I was. I was more of a typical tomboy. I would love to climb the hills. I played cowboys and Indians. Mostly I wanted to be Wild Bill Hickok. (laughs) (laughs) So a very blessed childhood. Can you tell me about your father, Delmore, who... Uh, really had a great career in the film industry? Um, My father was one of the early um, pioneers in television. He started um, doing local television programming, and uh, Betty White, who's so wonderfully popular now, uh, she and my father starred in a program called Life with Elizabeth that was in the 50s. It was a very, very wonderful program, and I think it was about three or four years, and it was just a great, great uh, first TV sitcom, and my dad was a young actor, and he had gotten his start in radio, and he was also in the Army during World War II and, and did radio programming um, for special services. And my dad was one of the first very um, lucky folks to be in, invited into the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and it was established in, in 1960, and Daddy got his star in February of 1961, of their very first uh, rung of actors. So he was very proud of that, and he got his star with the television emblem for his work in television. What is it uh, that reminds you more than anything about your father and mother? Do you remember any specific times with them? Well, uh, the fact that Daddy was an actor, we were very fortunate because he was home a lot. He would get up early in the morning and go and have a call before we would even leave for school, which meant many times he would be home before we got off the school bus. So when we got off the school bus, Daddy would be home and a fresh pot of coffee would be brewing for their afternoon sit-down. And and so we had this really nice kind of a nuclear family where we have sort of the closeness of the four of us and we always made a joke that if we were going up to nap we would kiss everybody good you know goodbye and go up take a nap or go to the grocery we'd kiss everybody goodbye and we'd come back kiss everybody hello so it was always a very tightly knit group in that way and and i have very warm feelings and memories of both of my parents they were very loving Never heard a crossword between the two of them, ever. They never had a fight. Um, I I was very, very lucky to have been brought up uh, with such a loving foundation, and I think that's one of the things that's shaped me as a person. At 18 years old, um, I realized that your father passed away, and you were approached to travel to Vietnam with the entertainment unit. What were your feelings then, looking back on that? Were you excited about that idea, possibly not even aware of where Vietnam was, uh, but were you aware of the conflict? Well, no, I wasn't really aware of the conflict. I was a very kind of uh, an atypical late-stage teenager. I was very apolitical, and I wasn't really paying attention. It was in the 70s, and 
Um, actually, I had contacted Johnny when my dad died in August. Um, my mom and my sister and I, we were just all suffering very, very much through the the quickness of his death. He had not been ill. He had died in his sleep. And we were just mourning terribly. And because Daddy had known so many people in the industry, and I knew that um, Johnny Grant, who was heading up this small unit at Christmas time, I phoned him and asked him if he had a spot on the tour, thinking that it would be kind of a different thing to do to get away at Christmas, not even realizing really where Southeast Asia was on a map, truthfully. How did your mother feel about that idea? Um, my mother was very supportive of anything that my sister and I wanted to do. She always, always backed us. I, selfishly as an 18-year-old, didn't realize that my mother, who was in her late 40s, and now a brand-new widow, would be suffering so immeasurably with the loss of her beloved husband and then to be worrying about her child in a war zone. I, I didn't think about that. But my mother said, okay, let's go. Let's take the meetings with the Army. Let's go on down there and, you know, get your paperwork and your immunizations and whatever we need to do, and we'll make the meetings together. And she was right there by my side. And the day I, I got on the plane, she was right there with me, waving, you know, just as if I was going off to camp as a fourth grader. You depart for Vietnam after completing all the documentation. Do you remember your thoughts as you were flying over the Vietnam landscape uh, when you first landed? Well, I was just absolutely amazed and, and just taken by the, the beauty of the countryside. It was just so breathtaking. Everything was so green and lush, which of course is ironic, of course, with the Agent Orange involvement. But it was just breathtaking. It just it was such a beautiful sight. I had never seen anything that we would see the the, uh, the Red Sea and the, the landscaping. It was just beautiful. But on the same token, I was terrified because suddenly I realized, oh, goodness, what, what have I done? Where am I? What am I doing? But the very good thing is that everybody on the flight over, they were just so professional and, and there was such a strong military atmosphere in, in that we were being protected and, you know, that everything would be all right. So I had that comfort. Your stay was fairly short. I believe it was uh, 18, 19 days. Is yes, that uh -huh. correct? Correct. In that time, it's an awfully long time ago, but what are your most distinct memories of those times and the soldiers that you met? Well, there was two different uh, memories that I have of uh, the gentlemen soldiers that were in the hospitals. We did a lot of evacuation hospitals and a lot of the field hospitals. And all of the boys were just so happy to see us. They were frightened and wounded and hurt. And the fact that we had given up our Christmas and we were there to share just five or six minutes by their bedside, holding their hand and talking with them, they were just, just wonderful, wonderful. And they were children. They were like, you know, my age. And the other ones that I have is when we visited these very, very remote fire bases uh, in the most uh, distant areas of the jungles. We would land from the, the helicopters into these areas where there might be 30, 40, 50 guys. And they would come running out from everywhere, from up above in the helicopter. They look like wonderful little ants scurrying around. And we would get down in there. They would have had our promotional pictures before we got there. And 
all four of us girls that we had our own little grouping of guys. I was sort of the sister or the girl next door. So I always got that grouping of, of fellows. And this one particular time, I remember we were in a larger crowd and this guy kept screaming out, Birmingham, Birmingham. And I thought, well, my goodness, that's my high school. And this fellow came out of nowhere. And he was so excited. He said, I went to Birmingham. I went to Birmingham. You went to Birmingham. Well, I didn't know him. He was in the semester before me. And we had a nice, wonderful talk. And I, I took his mom's phone number. And I said, when, when we get emotional, David, I said, when I get back home, I will call your mom and I will tell her how wonderful you look and that I had had this opportunity with you. And he was just so grateful. And I'll, I'll never forget that time. That was really, really special to me because it was so, so far away. Another universe. And here was a boy just down the street. You returned to the USA um, after that very short period, and you immersed yourself back into the normal uh, way of life. Uh -huh. I realized that you traveled through education in film. Correct. Did you at that time continue with those memories? Did you follow the events in Vietnam uh, with greater detail than had you not been there? I think probably a little bit more attuned to it. I can't say that, you know, I was, uh, had my finger on the pulse of everything that was happening, but like any current event that you get involved with, I was more um, attentive to what was going on, yes. You um, traveled through the years and had a wonderful life. Uh, you. I believe uh, were married in 1986. Is that I, correct? Yes, I was. Uh -huh. To your beloved hu husband Arnie, and can you explain to me the events of 1990 for our listeners? Um, well, it was the middle of the summer, and I had been taking a needlepoint class with some wonderful women for many years on a Wednesday at 10 to noon every week. And this particular day, when I got up to go to Needlepoint. I wasn't feeling really well, but it had been extraordinarily hot in uh, the San Fernando Valley that year. It was the end of June. been at 105, 107 degrees, and so it wasn't unusual not to feel great. And I remember getting to the Needlepoint class, and I said to my friend Kay, I'm not feeling very well today, and I just couldn't focus, and we used to always have lunch afterwards, and Around 11.30, she said, I, I think I'm going to call my doctor, and maybe you can go by. I said, no, that's all right, and so she did anyway. And uh, I said, I'm going to pass on lunch. I'm not feeling very well. I went back to the house, and before I even, I just left my car running. I went into my house, called the doctor, and I said, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they said, can you get here? I said, yes, I can, and I was uh, 38 years old. And I drove myself there. I called a friend of mine, and I said, I can't get a hold of Arnie, but please know that this is where I'm going. And when I got to the doctor's office, they checked me. I didn't have a heart attack, but I was having pressure in my chest. And we did a few tests, and the doctor gave me some liquid Maalox and took some blood and sent me on my way and said, you know, if it's not any better, I think you're just having maybe like a ulcer problem. So... A couple days later, it didn't get any better, and I was referred to Dr. Sheldon Davidson, uh, who happened to be a hematologist uh, and an oncologist. And I met him at 8.30 in the morning. 
by 9 o'clock, he had me at the hospital next door having a, a bone scan, and then later in that day, a CT scan. And by 5 o'clock, he got on the phone and said to me, Leslie, go home, pack your things, there's a tumor, I need you to report to the hospital tomorrow at 9 or 8 o'clock. I said, uh, oh. So it was a very restless night, and I, Arnie and I just held on to one another. And the next day we checked in, and uh, I had two days' tests and biopsies, and it came back that I had a malignancy in my abdomen. And that Friday, which happened to be Friday the 13th, I had a, about a seven-hour surgery with two extraordinary, wonderful surgeons who were very aggressive in their approach. They wanted to remove the tumor, which was very, very large. And in doing so, they wanted to do what they call a resectioning to make sure that the margins were clear. And in doing so, they removed uh, 85% of my stomach, my spleen, the tail of my pancreas, my left adrenal, and the tumor. And of course, you went on to have many more surgeries. Correct. The cost... That that burden upon you, um, what was that to, to do to your everyday life, to your life with your husband? How did you have to adapt your life? Well, it, it's immeasurable in, in the cost to us emotionally and financially. We're, I have not been able to work since 1990, so I haven't been able to contribute to the family. I had to give up my career in television. My husband, Arnie, is a, an independent um, consultant, and he's a, um, a contractor that works in organizational development. And there have been two bad recessions that have hit us in California, one that hit right after my second surgery in 92, and then, of course, this last one in the last two years. Um, we have had to pay all of our medical costs ourselves. We have no employer help because we are the employer. And my uh, insurance alone is just frightful. Uh, right now I'm paying uh, about $1,500 for my insurance and about $400 uh, a month separately for my medicine. I'm taking nine prescription drugs per day. And up until last week when I was... Uh, diagnosed with the leukemia, I, I'm healthier than, you know, a lot of people would think I would be. I have a lot of, I say that with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but I do have, you know, I'm functioning. If you were to put me in a group, you would never pick me out as the one that has, you know, so few organs, but um, I, I pass, I function. But the, the cost, um, we have always paid our medical bills and insurance first and foremost before any other bill ever because we knew that we had no no looking back to change insurance i'm insur uninsurable and during any of this time did you consider the connection that this rare form of cancer may have had something to do with your visit to vietnam you know david i never did i i was so busy with the actual day-to-day -day work 
of getting through the surgeries. My first surgery took me two years to get over the actual physical surgery. And I was so busy keeping myself going and doing the chemo, uh, which in the 20 years ago was in the hospital. It was a five-day, 24-hour-day event. Um, that I never really stopped to think, you know, where did the cancer come from or why me or, or what happened. I, was, I just, it was never any issue for me. It, the cancer was, you know, it is what it is, and I had a job to do. I was busy working full-time on my recovery and my healing and living a life that was so different from the one I had that I never, it w- wasn't in my heart to look back and, and figure out what a connection was. It just, I, I was too busy getting well. Over the many years, you struggled and you faced the challenges very heroically. And that Thank brings you. us up to 1990, where I believe to the very day of your trip to Vietnam, you learnt the dreadful news. Uh, can we talk about that? Uh, can you express at this stage when you were uh, surfing uh, on the Internet uh, what you found out about this? Well, I happened to be um, just, you know, doing, I'm a, I'm a Googler, and I uh, was doing some regular looking around, and I don't know, one thing led to me to the next, and I found this uh, statement that soft tissue sarcomas, which is the form of cancer, my first cancer was, um, was considered a, a Veterans Administration presumptive disease with connection to Agent Orange exposure. And I thought, well, gee, what does that mean? And I, I clicked on and I looked, and there were many soft tissue sarcomas, but specifically liposarcoma, which is the kind I had, which is a very, very rare form of cancer. And I started reading, and I, I was just... I almost couldn't, I was stunned. I couldn't breathe. Uh, it was like sort of waking up one morning and everyone was speaking a foreign language and I didn't understand anything they were saying. Their lips were moving, information was being imparted, but it just didn't make any sense to me. I, I read it over and over. It was just incomprehensible. And it was just heartbreaking. And at this stage, I would like to bring in Dr. Davidson, who has... I've been your consultant for many years. Yes, almost 20. Dr. Davison, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is a very desperate and sad case that Leslie is facing and has been facing for many years. Charting her progress here, uh, what are your conclusions at this stage with her situation? Well, she initially presented with this abdominal lymphoma, uh, a sarcoma, uh, which was quite an unusual expectation in somebody her age. Uh, it required really extensive surgery to remove that tumor, not only the removal of the tumor, but removal of uh, stomach, intestines, a, a lot of abdominal surgery that resulted in a long-term problem with her uh, because of that. So even though the tumor was removed and then she received some chemotherapy and as far as we know, she's never had a recurrence of the tumor, 
as a result of having such extensive surgery, removal of her spleen, removal of internal organs, uh, she's had a lot of problems over the course of time, uh, gastrointestinal difficulties that are essentially permanent and would not have been so if she hadn't required that extensive surgery. In these cases, what are the what are the opportunities um, to recover? Uh, was Leslie's case unusual uh, in so much that she survived all this dramatic uh, and intensive surgery? The uh, prognosis for large retroperitoneal sarcomas tends to be fairly poor. Uh, so her having survived and with such a long period of time since her surgery without recurrence, I think it's not unreasonable to say that she's cured of that tumor. Uh, that is not a common outcome in that situation. Is it a very rare form of cancer, Dr. Davidson? It is. Looking back at this story, looking back at Leslie's time in Vietnam and understanding that Agent Orange was prevalent, is there any evidence here to suggest that there is a direct connection? Uh, I don't think that that could be absolutely proven, but the fact is is that she developed a tumor that is usually seen in people much older, uh, and the fact that she experienced that tumor at that particular time after exposure uh, some years earlier certainly fits with the what we expect as the result of exposure. And the usual interval from exposure to development of a secondary malignancy is several years, not something that occurs immediately. Uh, and her time sequence would fit pretty well with, with the expectation. Have you yourself come across anything similar to this situation where Agent Orange was possibly the factor in a case? No, I haven't. But again, I haven't had experience of patients of her age having this kind of a sarcoma develop. It's it's not the the typical uh, period of time. This is usually a tumor that occurs in an, in an older age population. I think in closing, um, I understand that Leslie has. Uh, been diagnosed possibly with leukemia. Is there a connection in that, or is that a natural sequence event, of events that can occur? And is a rare disease, the, the type of leukemia. I think it may be a little premature yet to call it a leukemia, but she does have abnormal cells in her blood and abnormal cells in her bone marrow, and so I think one can stretch the diagnosis to say that she does have an early leukemia of a very rare form, and there is uh, data to suggest that that type of leukemia is associated with Agent Orange exposure, uh, that this, this is something that has been reported, that this particular form of leukemia, very uncommon type of leukemia, uh, is associated with Agent Orange exposure. Again, it doesn't prove that one caused the other, but 
the association of a rare disease with an exposure where there's been other information and other data that suggest that a, that a connection uh, would leave one to be very suspicious that she would not have developed this if she had not had the Agent Orange exposure. I think, Dr. Davison, that's all the questions that I have for you, sir. I thank you so much for giving me your time today. It's very much appreciated. You're quite welcome. Thank you, sir. Leslie, you began after this hard-hitting news to look at Agent Orange in more detail, to look at other cases, to see where you stood in receiving compensation. How did that work for you? Can you express the amount of work that you traveled through in trying to un uncover this mystery? Well, I started right away. This was like the end of August of, uh, ninth, of uh, 2009, and I, I just became, like, obsessed. And I hit every website I possibly could. And, of course, on the VA website that I originally had found the connection to the liposarcoma, they had a place for filing claims if you were a veteran, and it just scrolled down. There was a little little slat there where you could click on it said file claim and of course I'm not a veteran I didn't have a veteran's number I have um, paper that says I was sponsored by the the US Army to go on this particular tour uh, but I was not a veteran and so I called the Veterans Administration and there was a very lovely woman who was trying to sort of understand what I was saying and what I was kind of imparting and she said, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. You're not a veteran. And, of course, you know, I thought, all right, well, let me see what kind of help I can get. And I contacted my local congressman here in the 24th uh, district of, in the Los Angeles area and spoke to his chief of staff, who was very kind in getting back to me um, about something called the Defense Base Act, which is a workers' compensation under the Longshoremen's Act, where certain independent contractors fall, whether it would be perhaps a USO person or a photographer or a news person. Well, I contacted uh, the agency that handles that in Honolulu, and a lovely lady was there and talked to me about the day of the diagnosis, if I could file under the claim of the employer that I had at the time. Well, a month before I had gotten the diagnosis. I was working as an independent contractor on a documentary for the Discovery Channel on the Eisenhower years, but at the time I wasn't working. So now I didn't qualify under that caveat because I wasn't employed. And so then I started sending letters to various law firms across the country, and I got some very interested um, responses. They were very heartfelt, very brokenhearted on my behalf, but there was nothing they could do. No law in place for me. Uh, one, in fact, even said, thank you for contacting us, and we suggest that you feverishly seek legal counsel. Well, that's kind of what I thought I was doing with them. Uh, several, several of the law firms just didn't even respond. And then I contacted a couple of media outlets, and no one was, you know, even courteous enough to respond back. So I haven't, I haven't really had a very successful avenue along those lines. 
When was it that Dr. Davidson first talked to you about the connection between your dilemma, your, your this this terrible rare disease, and Agent Orange? Was it you well, actually, who, who actually, actually took it to him? Or? Yes, I did. It was actually the Friday of Labor Day weekend, and um, I took my paperwork and I that I had found and this little map and the VA explanation. And I took my notes, and I gathered the maps, and um, I said I needed to talk to you. And he says, oh, okay, you know, how you doing, you know. And he, and he looked at my face, and I, I started to cry. And he sat down in a chair near me, and he listened very attentively as I gave him all my information. And I showed him my map, and um, he said, you know, Leslie, all the dots connect now. All the things that you've had all these years, all the ailments, all the the little ancillary problems, they they all make sense to me with the exposure to Agent Orange. And I had never thought to tell him 20 years past that I had been in Vietnam. He had never thought to ask me. I was a, you know, the little joke goes, the valley girl, and, and why would he have asked me? I was a young woman. Uh, at the time I came to him, much, much younger than any of the sarcomas, let alone a liposarcoma. And so we had never even discussed it. And he, I continued to cry. He listened with great warmth and a kindness and a sharing of someone else's pain. And we had a moment there where we just, it all just came together for us. I'd like to refer to your website. I was very uh, taken with this. Life is like an onion. In my vision, it is a be- big, beautiful purple onion with layers upon layers of complexity. Peel away one layer and there is something beautiful on that level. Keep peeling and the deeper you go, the more you have a bundle of sweet layers, each with its distinctive shape and personality. How have you approached life, not only up to that point of finding this, dreadful connection but how do you approach life now Leslie well I was very lucky to have inherited my father's sense of humor and I have always approached life in any in any situation with kind of a wicked sense of humor and um, I haven't treated cancer in any different way I have taken humor with me uh, as probably my biggest friend along the journey and uh, Life after cancer is different. You see things differently. Uh, life has a different priority. There's a different level to what's important. You don't waste time on the little things. I find myself, I speak up more quickly and um, honestly, instead of maybe holding back, you know, a, a moment, I might say something if someone is going to be rude to me on the phone or something. Um, I just, I see colors clearer, David. I know that sounds kind of odd, but it's almost like the focus on one's life gets a little clearer, or at least it has for me. And, um, you know, I was given this blessing of these 20 years, and uh, probably my doctors have all shaken their heads that I even made the first year, and here I am the, the 20th year. And I just, uh, I'm not done. I, I just continue to go and 
see every every beauty that every day has, and that's kind of you know how I, I saw life before cancer, but now it's just a little bit more clear and focused. The very distressing news recently of the possibility of leukemia. How have you approached that now, Leslie? Do you, you clearly take these challenges with real style, uh, patience, and a real heroic spirit? Is leukemia something that is just another roadblock that you intend to get over? How do you view it after all of these struggles? Um, Yes, it's another roadblock. It's one I I did not want to come up against. I didn't want to go down this road. I am coming up within a month of my 20th anniversary, and at first my first thought was, oh, my goodness, I, I didn't make it. And then I thought, no, that's a totally different cancer, and I did succeed in, in those 20 years, and now I'm going to have a small celebration and in, enjoy that uh, that big uh, mark that I, I can put on the calendar. Uh, yeah, I, I am saddened by the new news of the leukemia because it is presumably another connection to the Agent Orange. So having just found out that the first one was connected and now being diagnosed with seriously the chance that it is leukemia. I mean, I have leukemia cells in the bone marrow. We had the bone marrow test. Um, it hurts. It hurts. But, um, yeah, it's it's something, it's a new journey, and it's a new journey that I will face. It's not one that I would have chosen, but here it is, and there are an awful lot of new things to see on this road um, that I will be taking. What about others who have been down the same road unknowingly? How can you help them, and have you uncovered any cases. I'm assuming that given that it took you 20 years to find this out, Mm -hmm. it must have been extremely difficult for others to actually put this connection together. Well, I have been looking since August when I found out. I have been looking for any survivor whatsoever. And I haven't been able to find any. And I mean, I, I am really a very, very thorough researcher. So I figure that if it's taken me this long, like you say, it's possible that there are a lot of folks that haven't put it together as well. So I'm hoping that this program brings light to a listener who possibly has a friend or a relative or someone who might make sense. There might be a connection there. It might be as, as simple as hearing us talking, and then they'll say, well, I, I know another party that's similar to this. Um, it's difficult because, you know, the research is is still new to me, and I'm still uncovering information. So it's it's just all kind of settling in. I, I, that's kind of a, a not the greatest answer for you, but it's just kind of it's new to me still. It, the the new diagnosis is 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 just beginning to sort of not be just out there, and and it's beginning to. to connect into my my heart and my feelings so there's a little sadness going on as well of course you clearly have an incredible outlook on life and most probably much clearer than most given the journey that you've taken looking now at the wider perspective your view 
on those around you, uh, your view of the world that we live in today, um, looking at those typical fears, the loss through betrayal, love and forgiveness. Uh, you're in a very special place to be able to make statements to these and how they affect other people. Um, how, how do you look at those and how do you look at other people around you who uh, clearly know what you have been through and what you are going through? How, how do you approach that? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've lived with the 20 years of every day because although the surgery and the chemo, you know, did its business and was finished, with the changing of my body structure, there is a different lifestyle that I've had to um, learn to live with. So it's not like someone who possibly had another cancer and then never had to think about it again. Mine is a daily um, challenge, struggle, um, balance. And so... I think that the best way that I can say is that I just try to greet every day the best way I can and try not to deal too much with a fear um, or betrayal because it's not anything that really can be positive and helpful to my healing. It's not productive to me if I'm angry or if I'm feeling betrayal uh, of any kind. Um, I feel saddened now when I look at the picture of my 18-year-old self, and I feel saddened for that young girl and that her innocence and all that her life could have been, knowing now that that time that she was giving at Christmas time to make others happy and to help herself as well, uh, now has produced a couple of really, really bad things. The first cancer and now this new cancer and with the unknown of where it will be taking me. But I try to just focus on on better understanding of everyone. And it's like if I find the love within my heart to help and guide me through this new cancer, then I can help other people as well by... by um, by showing them my strength. How has that love and support manifested itself, not only from your husband, but from friends around you? Well, Arnie's been the greatest thing in the world. Um, he has been with me every moment of the last 20 years, from diagnosis to the surgery to the chemo. He comes to my appointments with me. He carries my bag. He has to listen to my questions on the body image all the time. He's just never failing in his dedication. He must be very well versed now. He could probably <laughs> yes. go into that career himself. Yes, he could. <laughs> he's never been impatient, and he's always been my best supporter and my best cheerleader, and his love for me is bigger than the ocean, and there is no way I could ever, ever thank him for all that he has given me, and I'm just very blessed to have him. And, uh, I'm just very, very lucky. Looking back, uh, this profound picture to my, uh, the way I look at it, of you standing under that tree as an innocent 18-year-old mm -hmm. and looking back at Vietnam and that conflict, 
How do you view the conflicts that we have today? How do you view Afghanistan and Iraq and the way that we are spread so widely across the world? You must have a great perspective of that, looking at this with all these huge experiences that you have. Well, I think it saddens me more than anything, um, you know, for the families. When I, when I watch the soldiers of any age who are mothers going off and leaving children behind or, or the young men who are 18 and going off or older folks who are going off, I feel very saddened for their families. You know, I think of what my mother must have felt like when I was gone and she was worrying about me and although... You know, I wasn't even fighting. I was, you know, protected the best way. And I, and I do feel that, you know, gosh, I, I'm not a big proponent of war, and I really wish that we could somehow work to the best so that we're, we're not caught up in all of these activities and, like you say, spreading ourselves so thin across the world. It, it, uh, it concerns me. I suppose, though, the other concern is that soldiers out there now are probably going to be exposed if not to agent orange to other forms of chemicals that they are unaware of and that may repeat the sort of dilemma or challenges that you have yourself had well i have that that is a big concern of mine i have a, a most beloved friend of mine since the very very first day of high school and her son is a, a beautiful marine i guess you're not supposed to say beautiful marine but He's a, a wonderful young man who's been in, in the Marine Corps maybe a year now, and and I worry about him. I've known him since he was born, and I worry about his peers and things that they're being exposed to. And it is a, probably the, the most uh, concerning thing that I have about any of the conflicts of what these folks are being exposed to since, you know, 20 years it takes me to realize what I was exposed to. So... It is that is a, a worry I have. Looking at your own evolution, uh, your own inner being, Leslie, how would you like to be able to transform others around you to believe in themselves, to to understand that challenges such as the one you have can be overcome, uh, can be uh, taken in one stride. It can be taken with other people's help, love and support. Um, what would you say to other people who, no doubt, will face similar dilemmas? Well, I think the, the, the best thing is that you need to reach inside yourself, and this is how I, I get through mine. I reach inside, and if I feel frightened or afraid for a, a moment, uh, I'll just go in that little space for a second and then say, okay, now, Leslie, pull it together. We need to, to get ourselves working and moving forward. Any act of moving forward, I think, is the best way because it's the inertia that gets us into the depression or gets us into this is too hard. I can't do this. It is hard. And some days you don't feel like doing it or some 20 minutes you don't feel like it or the pain is too much. But then that doesn't get us anywhere. And I think that that's the best message I can give to folks, whether it's a caregiver or a loved one or a coworker or a friend or a family member or the cancer person or the person who's ill. Just, you know, try the very, very best, even if it's, you know, two minutes and then rest and then two minutes more. 
even if it's a half a foot, just keep going. Pull that strength from your own heart and, and from the people around you. Don't be afraid to ask. And don't be afraid to say, I know you don't know what to say to me. I know you know it's sad what's going on with me. But please, let's just get past that and, you know, let's, let's help each other. And I think that's the biggest important thing, David, that I know how friends are feeling for me, but they're, don't hide from me because you don't know what to say. You know, just say, I don't know what to say. Okay, well, we don't know what to say, and we'll get on with it. You know, it's terrible, but, but we'll all get together. With this wonderful journey that we have gone through, wonderful in so many ways that it has made you the person that you are today, and that is truly a hero to my mind, and a hero seen in other people's eyes, and a hero you, you shall be as you continue your journey. What is that you would like to see not only for yourself out of this program, and out of the evidence that has been very clearly set on the table by Dr. Davison, that assures that your own case is looked at with greater detail and that others who have gone through similar situations and will go through similar situations in the future can be supported through these days and, and how you can actually get compensation given that you were in Vietnam yourself supporting the troops, you were um, doing everything you could uh, to help them feel um, that they had support. Well, first of all, thank you very much on the comments about being a hero. I just sort of do what I have to do, but I do thank you very kindly. Um, I would like to have um, my situation looked at uh, from the point of you know possibly help. I I'm in a position where I need some help. Um, so I'm not being shy about that, that this has come as a great surprise and a great shock and a sadness to Arnie and I both from all the things that we've had to pursue over the years and, and sacrifice for my health care. Um, I would also like to see other people maybe thinking about other folks that they might know that could possibly have been exposed in a situation of a non military civilian um, situation where someone that, you know, like me so many years later, it might make sense. I'd like to have a voice to those folks. I'd be, like to be able to have them come along with this new journey um, of getting some acknowledgement and recognition and compensation for the time and the suffering that we have put in. I I'm sure there must be others and I'm, I'm hoping that this show will will bring out some of those. And I, I have a website and, uh, that is hopefully going to acknowledge, and our, my mission statement on that is that we'd like to see other folks come forward and, and be a spokesperson for not only myself but them and see what governmental help we can get uh, and to, to make this injustice right. And what is the address of your website? It's all one one word, a loss of innocence dot com. And in the closing minutes, Leslie, where are you going to be going from here now? What are your aspirations in the short term? Well, I have to um, 
pursue this leukemia and see what's happening and what we're going to be doing about that and continue with my health. And I'm going to be doing a great deal of work on the computer with the website and hopefully making some contacts with some veteran groups and see if if perhaps they can get behind me and support me and see what we might be able to do with a letter writing campaign or some kind of, of action uh, supporting myself and, and others that may come forward. Leslie Mordorkey, Dr. Davison, I thank you so much for being on this program today. I will be supporting you in every way that I can with this and uh, we will be uh, following you and surely uh, we will be following this up with a further program. Well, thank you very, very much, David, for having me. I appreciate it and thank all of your listeners for their attention and their ho- hopefully their support on this. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program and learned much about Leslie's life and her challenges and the great efforts in which she has taken these challenges in her stride. I hope that you will take a look at davidgibbons.org. Leslie does provide much information at that site. There is a blog feature and I'm sure that Leslie would love to hear from you with your comments and feedback. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.